Morning, everybody. So good to be with you as always. Hey, before I get into it, I just want to say, before you walk out the door real quick, brother, Mario, I love you, man. Super proud of you. I've known Mario since he was in high school, and we're going to be praying for you. I want to encourage you, at the very least, to be praying for Mario, his wife, and their team. This is tip of the spear ministry. You know, the, the reality is he engages with a lot of darkness every single day, and it's hard to disengage from that. You know, you carry that with you as a minister. And so be praying for him, his wife, be praying for his team, and um, make sure you go out there and talk to him and see how you can support him as well. So appreciate you, man. Thank you. All right, so uh, this morning we're going to continue in our series in Romans. If you've been around for the last few weeks, you know that the message has been very straightforward from the Apostle Paul, like painfully straightforward because he's been dropping some truth bombs that society doesn't necessarily want to hear. For example, in chapter one, he speaks to those who deny God's existence. And essentially what he says is there's a reason behind that. Very often it is because people don't want to believe there's a God because it stands to reason that if there is a God, he probably has something to say about how I live my life. And I don't want anybody telling me what to do. So it's easier for me to dismiss God. They suppress the truth about God through their unrighteousness, he says. But they're without excuse because creation and nature, all you have to do is look around you. You see design and order, complexity. That implies a designer, a creator. So they're without excuse. Then in chapter two, he speaks to the moralist. These are the people who believe that in and of themselves, they can determine what is right and what is wrong apart from God because they believe that they're really not that bad. They're moral. They're not immoral people. And Paul says, now let's be honest. You're not as good as you think you are. And I'll prove it to you. The standards you have for others, you don't maintain them yourself. You want people to be honest with you, yet at times you're dishonest with them. You can't live up to your own standards. You don't want people thinking impure thoughts about others, about you or people that you love, yet you do that. You're not as good as you think you are. So you are without excuse. Though there's only one group left. He speaks to the God deniers. He speaks to the moralists. And unless the moralists think they have some kind of high ground, that they have it all worked out. Well, March 6, 1927, a man named Bertrand Russell gave a lecture to the National Heretics Society. And it, it became very popular, this lecture. In fact, it was, it was turned into a book titled Why I Am Not a Christian. And so I had a professor at ASU, and this was recommended reading. And so I read the book. And one of the assertions Russell makes is that humans, we don't need God. We can collectively decide for ourselves between what is right and what is wrong. We don't need a supreme being to tell us. We can decide that for ourselves as a society. The problem is that a few years later, this guy named Hitler came to power because millions of Germans believed 
that he had the solution to the country's problem. That solution was to exterminate the Jews. You see, they were the source of Germany's conflicts. And so, isn't it right and proper for us to annihilate them? So this is what government leadership believed, and this is what the people supported collectively. We need that North Star. I'm just telling you, humanity needs that North Star, that compass outside of ourselves to tell us exactly what is right and what is wrong. I finished reading that book and I became convinced I had to be a Christian. (laughs) I had to be a follower of God. Paul speaks to the God denier in chapter one, to the moral person. Chapter two, you're not that good. You're not as good as you think you are. Then in chapter three, there's only one group left. And that is the religious people. Now in Paul's day, I need to set this context because a lot of what we're going to read is very verbose and it carries an Old Testament context, Jewish context, okay? But I'm gonna help unpack that for us. Paul's day, it was his Jewish brothers and sisters. They thought they were set apart and they had special privileges that they were on great terms with God simply because God chose them of all people to be a window through which others would see how God interacts with humanity through the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews. No other people group did God select, just them. And so they were kind of like, hey, we have a special place with God that you all don't have. We have this advantage. More to the point, God gave us his word. It went from God to Moses to everybody else. We have this advantage no one else has. Paul's about to write and say, well, you do have an advantage in God giving you his word, but it isn't what you think at all. In fact, it might be the opposite of what you believe. So Paul goes on to explain, yes, you do have something that others don't. There is an advantage, but, uh, but let me explain to you exactly what it is. Chapter three, verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew? If Paul is arguing that being a Jew really is not the advantage you think, then what advantage is it? He's anticipating this argument from his Jewish readers, so he raises it, very smart guy. Or what is the value of circumcision? That's like the ultimate expression of one's Jewishness for a male. When God entered into a covenant agreement with Abraham, it was signified by circumcision. So this was kind of like the outward badge of honor. Are you a Jew? Well, are you circumcised? If so, then that means you've entered into this agreement with God officially. Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were the ones who were entrusted when God wanted to give his word to mankind. He gave it, he trusted it to the Jews. And and they've been tenacious in keeping it it as it was handed down. The Dead Sea Scrolls help us understand just how fervent they were in keeping accurate records. What's been handed down? How do we know that it's accurate? How do we know that things haven't been lost in translation? Investigate the Dead Sea Scrolls and you'll see how incredibly accurate they are. Additionally, when God met with Moses, he said, here's exactly what I want from the people. So they have no excuse for not understanding who I am, who they are, and what is required. That's a tremendous advantage for them. 
And from one generation to the next, again, they've handled it very well. I, I was uh, at a friend's, uh, my, my friend's son had a bar mitzvah, and so I went to the synagogue, and, uh, and I was one of the very few Gentiles in the room. First off, I'm about a foot taller than everybody else, okay? So that was kind of fun. It was a very interesting experience. I was treated with a lot of dignity and respect, even though I'm a, a Gentile, I'm non-Jewish, for example. They have, as, and this is a, 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 a this is a, a rather common thing, especially in many of the larger well-known synagogues throughout the nation, they will have as their prized possession an ancient Torah, Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So this synagogue actually had a Torah that was rescued from Nazi Germany. It was their prized possession. And so at one point during the bar mitzvah, the rabbi took out this uh, Torah. And I've been to this rabbi's house for several um, Shabbats, and we have a great relationship together. He's actually one of the 30 under 30 most influential rabbis in the nation. He's here in Scottsdale. And so he takes this Torah and he puts it on his shoulder. And then he kind of parades up and down the aisles and everybody's singing and dancing. And as the Torah approaches you, you, you take the Torah that is hard copy in the back of the seat in front of you, you kiss it, and then you use it to touch the ancient Torah as a symbol of respect. So he comes to me and he recognizes, I've got like the cardboard yarmulke, you know what I'm saying? The ones that the visitors grab. And he, he comes up to me and again, out of respect, he switches shoulders with the Torah so as not to allow a Gentile to touch it. And he says, shalom. Now that, that's, that was, I didn't feel dishonored by that, that was respect because you see, we actually honor the same text but the care and, and, the, and, and just the honor, the reverence that rabbi had for the sacred text. God chose the right people group to entrust his word. It's a huge advantage. It communicates clearly who God is, who man is, and what God requires of mankind. And man is always trying to bridge this gap between himself and God. And he does it in many different ways. But the Bible helps us understand exactly how that gap is to be bridged according to the God who created us. So there's tremendous advantage. Now, here's the challenge. If you know the history of God's people, the Jews, they haven't always followed God's commands perfectly. In fact, at times, one could even say to this day, they've drifted pretty far away from it. And so Paul, again, being inspired by the Spirit of God and super intelligent, he anticipates this argument. Well, is there really an advantage to having God's word if nobody obeys it? What if some were unfaithful? What if they weren't faithful to God's word? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. God is true. Even though everyone else is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So the argument goes like this. Paul, how can you possibly say that having the word of God is an advantage when, when everybody blows it off? Nobody listens to it. Nobody's reading it. Nobody's following it. Paul's point is simple. He says, look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if a billion people follow it or no one. God is true. And when he speaks, every word is truth. 
one of their great patriarchs, King David, he has a moral failure. And he reflects upon this afterward. And you know what he says? He says, God, here's what I've learned. Your word is true. (laughs) What it says about me and the condition of my heart is absolutely true. I know it. I can read it. And I am without excuse. Whether I acted on it or not, it was true in my life. So there is another objection that could be brought up that Paul answers, verse five. But if our unrighteousness, right? Like if our rebelliousness, our disregard of what God wants, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, that is to say how good God is, how true God is, what shall we say? Are you gonna say then that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Is it out of bounds for him to inflict wrath on us? He says, I speak in a human way, by no means. For then, how could God judge the world? By what standard would he use? Well, one standard is, it's here. It's written in black and white. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, in other words, he says, if my lying makes God look good, this is a very interesting argument, if my lying my rebellion, my unrighteousness, if that makes God look good because God in his word says that it's true of me, every time I act in that way, I just make God look more and more true, right? Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So he's saying that if through my badness, I make God look good, why not be bad all the time? Because when I'm bad, I reveal the fact that what God says about me is actually accurate and right, and God is true. When God's word reveals that I'm a sinner, I act like a sinner, God's true, why not sin more so that God can look better? Paul doesn't even give a response. He's like, that's so dumb. I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna dignify that. If you don't understand the outworking of what is right and what is wrong, you need to wake up. The reason why your life is so jacked up is because you've been choosing the wrong. There's a trajectory to it. God has baked into the fabric of reality, simple principle, you reap what you sow. So if you think you can reap all these bad things and be like, I'm making God look good, in the end, you're gonna end up calling Mario. That's what he's saying. It's like, I'm not even gonna dignify this objection. So let's review. If you have the word of God, you have a tremendous advantage because you know who God is, you know what he's asking of you, and you know who you are in light of what he's asking. So practical application. If you were raised in a Christian home, with parents or a parent that encouraged you to read your Bible, if you were brought to church and you sat under the authoritative teaching that seeks to understand the author's original intent when he wrote, that's biblical preaching. The preacher's opinion doesn't matter. Who cares about my opinion? What we want to know is the author, when he was inspired by the word, inspired by God, had a very specific message he wanted to relay to God's people. That's what we want to unearth in mind. 
when we do, we place ourselves under the authority of God's word. If that's you, if you've been raised in a Christian home, encouraged to read your Bible, you've sat under good teaching, and you have rejected it and ignored it, Paul's actually speaking to you. This is nothing new. The big movement now amongst younger evangelicals, younger Christians, from those who are deconstructing their faith. Be very careful what you deconstruct when you have nothing better to build in its place. If you deconstruct the word of God and what the author had received from God to be a blessing to your life, it's not gonna go well for you. You will fall into the category of Romans 1, the God deniers. Romans 2, I don't need God. I'm good enough. But the danger is also in Romans 3, to think that just because you have the word of God, as a Jew, you have that, that makes you something special, and because of that alone, you're on good terms with God. Paul says, you couldn't be more wrong. Here's why. What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. Don't be proud at this advantage that you have, for we have already charged at all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no one, no one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together, collectively, they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You're like, wait a minute, that's pretty extreme. Well, the standard, ultimate standard, is Jesus. So compared to Jesus, yeah, these things are pretty true. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. So now he gets at the real issue. People can say, I've never murdered anybody. You know, it's like, I'm not a cannibal. I don't eat people. I don't stalk people. Yeah, but let's talk about your words. The things you say every day. You use your mouth to deceive people. It's like an open grave where you bury others. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness and their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And then he speaks to the root issue. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this is super strong language. And this is actually, um, in, in the original language, this is what is referred to as a shiraz. So it's a form of Hebrew literature. Shiraz, that Hebrew word literally means a string of pearls, a string of pearls. And so if one wanted to communicate profound wisdom, they would grab a truth from the Old Testament and they would, they would grab another truth and they would string together these, these pearls of wisdom. That's exactly what Paul does here. That's what the literary style tells us. So one, one uh, comment after another is lifted from the Old Testament to say, all these things that have been said in the, in, the New, in the Old Testament are true. They're all true. And the, the very thing that we all struggle with, no matter who we are, is what we say, what comes out of our mouths. We all have that issue. The main point, though, is that people just don't fear God. And because they don't fear God, they just do whatever they want to do, thinking that there's no accountability, there's no consequence to my actions, and that's why the world is so jacked up. And if we were to be brutally honest, this is super hard to disagree with. One commentator put it this way. If sin was the color blue, every aspect of us would be the same shade I'll press it and take it further. What I would say is, if everyone's skin color was determined by sin, humanity would see for the first time 
what they truly have in common. Because all of our skin color would be the same. Our Kent Hughes in his commentary quotes Turgenev, the Russian poet, saying this, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it's terrible. So Paul gives a resounding conclusion in verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. God has made it plain. He's written it in black and white. These are his standards. We fall short. Now we're held accountable to God. Every mouth is silenced. For by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight. Doing all the do's and refraining from the don'ts, that's not what gets you into heaven. That's not what puts you on good terms with God. Like take the 10 commandments. We violate those things every single day. And if it was a matter of keeping those perfectly, none of us has a chance. But Paul says, that's not the purpose. The purpose is to reveal the fact that beyond a shadow of a doubt, we're in the wrong. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's how we know. All right, so the advantage of having the word. We know clearly what God wants. We know clearly who we are. We know clearly what God expects from us. Now, one of the great deceptions of our time is this. And the culture, society at large, is propping this up. It is the idea that somehow, some way, primarily through technology, more education, we can advance ourselves as a race. But think about it. Those who ran the concentration camps talked about going home to their families at night, sharing a meal together around the dinner table as you would, and they would talk mathematics and philosophy. At that time, Germany was one of, if not the most technologically advanced country in the world. Also one of, if not the most well-educated. They would talk mathematics and philosophy around the table while listening to Wagner on the record. And then they would wake up the next morning, go to the concentration camp and exterminate Jews. One of the great deceits of our time is that we just need to be better educated. If only chat GPT to the rescue. No, there's, there's this ongoing sense in our culture that we need some kind of self-improvement, right? Massive, massive, everywhere, self-improvement. Why? Well, because people are experiencing self-deprovement. Google Translator had a hard time with that one. I had to override it. <laughs> self-deprovement. You understand what I'm saying? Why does everyone self, we need self-improve, we need to get better, we need to get better, we need to get better. Why? Because everybody's so jacked up. We, there's, such a, there's such a downward spiral for humanity right now. We need, it's such self-deprovement. And uh, there's some interesting statistics here. Today, worldwide, there is less poverty, more education, better health care, and longer life expectancy than there was 50 years ago. According to YouGov, only 6% of Americans think that the world is getting better. 6% of the world thinks they're getting better. We're living longer. Yeah, but 
kind of lives are we living? Is it worth it? We're healthier than ever. I mean, medicine is it's amazing. Yeah, but if it prolongs my life and my life is meaningless, we're richer than ever. Well, that doesn't seem to bring the happiness. Everybody wants improvement by improving themselves, improving what's around us. The message of Jesus is actually quite different. What it tells us is you you really can't improve yourself apart from a relationship with the God who created you. Because God is the author, creator, sustainer of all life. He knows how life is to be lived. And by the way, here's your advantage. He's told you. He's told you. Tremendous advantage in having the word. But the message doesn't fit the culture or the times. See through it. Very, very uh, famous fable. The fable of the emperor who has no clothes. So this emperor, in all his pride and grandeur, decides, I should be wearing the finest wardrobe. I should have the finest cloak. So he consults the designers and says, I need the most beautiful wardrobe that's ever been. And the designers say, no problem. And they begin to con the emperor. We have exactly what you need, sir. You see, there's this special material. And it's invisible to those who have impure hearts. But to the pure in heart, they can see the fabric. So the emperor, not wanting to be perceived as being impure, says, fantastic, great, do it. So time goes by and there's nothing being produced. So the emperor sends his advisor. Hey, go check on the work. Go check on the progress. So the advisor shows up and here are the designers sitting down and they're diligently weaving nothing. Then they tell the advisor, I know you're here to check on the work. We're almost done. Look, we're working feverishly. Because you know, with this kind of material, it it takes time and only the pure in heart can see it. What do you think? And what does the advisor say? It's beautiful. It's stunning. And he goes back and he reports to the emperor. I've seen the work. The material is quite unusual. And it's only for the pure in heart. And emperor you will love it more than anyone. So the day comes and the designers arrive and they're bringing the cloak just like this. Emperor, it's time for you to strip naked so you can wear your new robe that only the pure in heart can see. And what does the emperor do? He's naked. Designers place the robe on his shoulders. What do you think? You must enjoy it more than all others because of who you are. It's gorgeous. Well, Emperor, don't you think the people should see it? Certainly. And so he walks amongst his people. And what do the people do? (gasps) the pure in heart recognize the pure in heart it's lovely 
And then there's this little boy in the crowd. And he's looking. And he's pointing. And he's laughing. The emperor has no clothes. And in a second, the facade of culture and society and collective opinion Shared morality crumbles. The facade completely crumbles. The Bible exposes the facade. There is tremendous advantage. But see, what's happening all around you is what? It's a beautiful garment, it's lovely. Meanwhile, God's word is revealing things as they really are. What advantage of the word? Every advantage. If you read it and you apply it. So Jesus says it comes in a very different form. Now, last week in one of the services, at least one of the services, I thanked everybody for being faithful. If you've been faithful in coming and sitting under the teaching of Romans 1, 2, and now chapter 3, Good for you. Well done. Not been easy to receive. And I've been waiting five weeks to get to verses 21 and following. Now that Paul has leveled all of humanity, (laughs) it's kind of like, what is the hope for humanity then? But now... God is doing something different. He's revealing something that has been in the works the whole time, but you get to see the fullness of it. Talk about advantage. But now, the righteousness of God, the goodness of God, what it means to be in a right relationship with God has been manifested apart from the law. The law was never meant to put you on good terms with God. It was just meant to show you that you were a sinner. But now, God is revealing how you can be on good terms with him. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to what's about to happen, what God is revealing, this righteousness that is now coming to us for our advantage, and here it is, verse 22. Now the righteousness of God is found through faith. That's trust in a person, and it's not you. It's Jesus Christ for all who believe. We're gonna unpack this next week. But the gospel contains bad news and good news. Paul turns the corner now. He's just given you two and a half chapters worth of bad news. But you can't understand how sweet your salvation is. You don't know how good the good news is unless you know how bad the bad news is. And now we're about to discover how sweet it is because Paul is gonna start using words like grace and mercy and forgiveness. And everybody's just like, oh, this is so good because we didn't stand a chance. God had to intervene. And that's why Jesus comes, takes all of your junk upon himself. And God looks at you through the, sons, through the lens of his son, Jesus Christ, as forgiven. The wrath that Paul spoke of in chapter one was placed on Jesus. And you escape it. Pretty good deal for you and me. 
he'll elaborate next week. But um, I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for now. I'm gonna ask you to pray with me. In the book of Acts, John, Peter, they're, they're giving these amazing sermons. Peter at one point says, you know, there's no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved. And that name is Jesus Christ. Salvation is not found in the works of the law. It's not found through your own moral fortitude. It's found through faith in Jesus and him alone. So maybe you've been coming for the last few weeks and you're like, man, it's starting to resonate with me. I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to get it. I invite you to take the invitation that is there for you. You take all of your wrongs, your sins. Mistakes is a word that's sometimes used, but that's, that's not, it's not quite accurate. You know, a, mis- a mistake, sometimes it seems as though it could be inadvertent, but the way the scriptures describe sin is, it's just, bla- it's there, it's within, our, it's within our hearts, it resides within us. Um, you take all that and you put it on Jesus. And in return, he gives you eternal life. Not, not only meaningful in the life to come, but here and now, purpose, direction. If you've made that decision or you wanna make that decision, it's really important that you talk to somebody about it. You can talk to myself after the service. You can approach anybody that's on the stage. We would love to have that conversation with you. Father, our great desire is for you to continue to speak truth through your word. We're grateful for it. We're grateful for the the way in which it just it just lays us it does lay us bare, exposes us for who we really are. But then we get this cloak of righteousness that comes on us that can only be supplied by Jesus, and that makes all the difference. Lord, I, I pray for those who have been wrestling with some of these things, God, that Your Spirit would continue to speak in a real gentle but but firm way. Lord, I pray that we would take advantage of what we have been given through the sacred text, apply it to our lives and be changed. But it starts with the recognition that we are in desperate need of a savior, no matter who we are, no matter where we come from. And you provide it in your goodness. And for that, we're grateful. We ask it in the name of the one that makes it all possible. His name is Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen.